0: would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21, where we'll pick up with verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. But Before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's get to our God in prayer together. Our faithful and true and righteous, triune God, we bow in humility together this night, offering to you thanks and gratitude for the wonder of salvation and Your sovereign electing grace. Uh, We thank You for time that we can reflect upon the truth of Scripture and the commands that are before us as Your redeemed children. And as we think of Your law, may our affection grow toward it. May our desire be to conform mind and heart to the loving authority, seeing Your law and the instruction in it as freeing, not constraining, as it were, but to see that life itself is found in submission to you and in Christ alone. In whose name we pray, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, "'You shall take him from my altar, that he may die. "'Whoever strikes his father or his mother "'shall be put to death. "'Whoever steals a man and sells him, "'and anyone found in possession of him "'shall be put to death. "'Whoever curses his father or his mother "'shall be put to death. "'When men quarrel and one strikes the other "'with a stone or with his fist, "'and the man does not die but takes to his bed, "'then if the man rises again "'and walks outdoors with his staff, "'he who struck him shall be clear. "'Only he shall pay for the loss of his time.' And shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave. Male or female. With a rod and the slave dies under his hand. He shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two. He is not to be avenged. For the slave is his money. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman. So that her children come out. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him. And he shall pay as the judges determined. But if there is harm. Then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is posed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price and the dead beast also they shall share. Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox. And the dead beast shall be his. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. Now, as we continue to work our way through the book of Exodus, and this section in particular, let's remember that here through chapter 23 is a section of Exodus that we could refer to as the book of the covenant. This is simply an application of the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. Now, in a sense, there's nothing new in these laws. Rather, each of these regulations and ordinances can be directly connected to one of the Ten Commandments. But though there is nothing new, that doesn't mean that this is just wasted space in God's Word. But we should think of these laws as loving instruction from the God who has redeemed His children from slavery that they might understand how to live as His called-out people. It's important for them, just as it is important for us, to see that the law of the Lord encompasses all of life that every facet of our being as God's redeemed people is to be lived in reference to the Lord God. Just as we heard this morning from Zechariah, the Word should be our foundation, our starting point, our absolute authority. And so, as we look at the rest of chapter 21 tonight, we really learn a lot here about the need for justice in a fallen world. And so, first this evening, let's think for a moment about the nature of justice and our desire for it. Our first point this evening is simply this, the need and our desire for justice. Now, if any society is going to be governed properly, orderly, fairly, well, there must be a judicial system in place. We all understand the need for accountability, and we understand the need for punishment against those who would seek to do harm against others. We know that sin is pervasive in this world, and it has terribly warped the human heart in all kinds of ways, and it seems like on a weekly, even a daily basis, that we learn of horrific and tragic forms of violence and theft, destruction, manipulation, and so much more as mankind is filled with selfishness, anger, and murderous and violent acts against one another. And so, a system of justice is indispensable for life in this fallen world. And for justice to be fair and equitable, motives of the heart must be uncovered. This is much of what's behind our own legal system in sometimes lengthy trials to try to uncover the underlying motives behind the perpetrator. For example, a crime that is much more calculated and planned out receives a greater degree of punishment than something spontaneous and certainly something accidental, though, of course, all of these things must be dealt with through a legal system in order to have civility within society. Now, it's not just the need for a judicial system, but each one of us has a desire for justice and for accountability. We want wickedness punished, and we want horrible acts removed from our community. As much as we want justice and fairness, there are times in our own legal system that can be very frustrating to us. Perhaps we read of a, of, of, a, of a case that gets thrown out on some procedural technicality when the one charged seems clearly to be guilty. In a high-profile case, an emotional argument seems to outweigh the facts and someone gets falsely condemned or falsely exonerated. Occasionally, you hear about advancements in DNA technology that prove someone's innocence, though they have been in prison for years. And how can He really put a price on compensating someone for years lost in prison waiting for justice? It's just not possible to have a flawless judicial system in this present age. And as God's people, that causes our hearts to long all the more for the return of our Savior. When those who are in Christ Jesus will be vindicated, not because of inherent righteousness, of course, but because of our union with Christ Jesus, while those who have lied and manipulated, who have seemed to thwart the legal system and live as though they are above the law, will finally be judged by the righteous and just judge of humanity, the living God Himself. And indeed, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But in the meantime, the Lord is good to the people of Israel to give them these broad principles that help to govern life together, principles that have relevance and wisdom to offer to us today, not just in the formulation and instruction of our own civil laws, but for life together as we seek to care for one another, as we seek to love one another, as we strive to work to be patient with one another. Now, while there are quite a few laws here in chapter 21, we'll classify them into several different subcategories while considering some of the underlying motives that are behind these laws. And so, this is our second point this evening, laws that govern life together, laws and what we might call the principles that are behind them. Now, let's remember that at this section of God's Word… This is the Lord speaking to Moses from Mount Sinai. And so, starting in verse 12, the Lord speaks to various capital crimes. And that's sort of our first subcategory of laws. You might label this as point A under point two capital crimes. Now, certainly, every crime is against the Lord, every crime is a sin, every sin is deserving of condemnation. And ultimately, every sin is deserving of death. But we recognize that some crimes, some sins, as our confessional standards put it, because of their varied aggravations, they're more heinous than others because of their destructive nature, because of their consequences. And so, the more damage a crime creates, the more severe the punishment should be. And there are some crimes in the nation of Israel that were so heinous so potentially destructive to the fabric of society that they were deserving of death. Now, oftentimes an objection that you'll hear to capital punishment is that it is a self-contradictory system. You've probably heard arguments along this line of reasoning, that if someone takes the life of another person, even if they murder someone, what sense does it make to take their life in return? But of course, the execution of a condemned criminal is not the same as murder there's one that flows from the wickedness of a human heart. The other is an act of justice for the maintaining of society. We understand that motive and intent sets those two acts apart from one another very dramatically, and so clearly they are not the same. And incidentally, this is not the first time in Scripture in which the Lord permitted capital punishment. Back in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, You remember that the Lord allows for this form of justice to be implemented in the case of murder. And why? Because all of mankind is created in the image of God, and mankind has inherent value as an image bearer. And so, to take the life of another is to forfeit your own. Now, of course, great care must be exercised in determining guilt, Because once that verdict of a capital offense is executed, obviously there's no going back. And so guilt must be absolutely certain before execution goes forward. Now later in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Lord states that multiple witnesses will be needed in order for the penalty of death to be enacted. And so we're talking about the importance of a fair trial, free from bias, free from corruption, free from injustice. These are all necessary things in order for capital punishment to be applied. And so if a society lacks those things, that freedom from bias and appropriate witnesses and so forth, then I would argue that they forfeit the right to impose capital punishment. But notice that these laws differ in how the Lord recognizes the varying motives behind the death of another. It's one thing to lie in wait for another person to strike that one in premeditated murder. This is clearly something that must be purged from the nation of Israel. But it's another for death to occur by accident, even recognizing that this is part of the Lord's mysterious decree that one may accidentally die by the hand of another, in which case there is provision for the man's safety. In order to prevent a system of revenge from ruling life together. And just think of how tempting it is to lash out in revenge in your own life, how your first reaction to being wronged is to lash out in equal measure. If someone hurts you with their words, for example, you want to hurt them right back by saying something cruel in the hopes that your words will make the other person feel the same way that their words made you feel. Someone damages your property and you feel justified in some form of retaliation. Every once in a while, I'll come across one of those Florida man stories. Perhaps some of you are familiar with Florida man. There was one recently in which a man killed his neighbor's chicken because his neighbor's chicken attacked his father. Though the neighbor insisted that it was an innocent chicken, it was the family chicken, it was a well intended chicken, it meant no harm. And so, he decided to sue his neighbor over the loss of their dear family pet. We live in a litigious society. We presume that someone is always to blame for all of the ills that happen around us, and we feel justified in that response of retaliation. And our courts, of course, are bogged down with such cases of others seeking to retaliate against another who they believe has done them wrong. Now, if our initial reaction Is one of retaliation given the hundreds upon hundreds of laws that we have in our own land. You can imagine in the ancient world that revenge would be a very real temptation for God's people. And so, the Lord allowed for His people to flee to a place of safety. We learn later in Deuteronomy 19 that there will be six cities of refuge established in the land of promise. And so, if a man is killed, His family will want justice, and they will be tempted toward revenge, as the one who kills another can go to one of these cities of refuge. He can flee into the sanctuary of the city and lay hold of the altar as a place of shelter. And so, this is sort of a safe place for him to go, while the judges of the city can determine exactly what happened. And if it was an accidental death, the man could remain in that city of refuge and live out the rest of his life safely. He was not allowed to depart that city of refuge unless the high priest died. But if it was a willful act of murder, not even grasping the horns of the altar would prevent him from being dragged out and executed. And notice that it's not just murder, but there are other crimes that would be deserving of the death penalty. For a child to strike father or mother, even if they don't die, would lead to execution. And we're not talking here about everyday disagreement between child and parents. Don't go home and threaten your children with that. But we're talking here about a vicious type of assault on a parental figure that clearly is not something that can be tolerated in the covenant community because of how destructive it would be for society. Philip Rikens states, that if someone so dishonored his parents as to strike them with the intent to kill, he deserved to die. He forfeits his life. But even to curse parents, as we read in verse 17, is equally heinous because it is a manifestation of hatred toward God-appointed authorities. Such disdain toward authority threatens the nation of Israel and must be purged from their midst. Now here, I think, is an important principle behind some of these laws. We could say that living joyfully under the authority of God is vital for Christian living. We don't just live under authority because we're forced to, although certainly at times it may feel that way, but we are to be teachable, and we are to recognize the great need that we all have to joyfully submit to God's loving authority over us. There's a lot of talk in our age about the importance of human flourishing, which is oftentimes defined as the freedom to do whatever we want. But the only way to truly flourish as an image-bearer of God is to joyfully, willingly, teachably live under the authority of God, learning to see the law of the Lord as something that is life-affirming, not life-restricting. But beyond these capital crimes, we find, notice, a second subcategory of laws beginning in verse 18. And these are related to different forms of personal injury. And so we could label this as point B laws of personal injury. Now, of course, the whole category of personal injury laws are other things that are greatly abused in our society, as we're led to believe that there is someone to blame for any sort of personal harm that I incur in this life, and I am justified in suing for damages. But of course, there are cases of legitimate personal injury in which restitution and accountability are important. Conflicts and disputes are inevitable living in a fallen world, but striking another person in violence is never an appropriate response. And so, if someone breaks this law by striking another with his fist, with a stone, with something else, there is to be compensation and restitution, some form of consequence is because they took matters into their own hands rather than taking that dispute before the judges and elders of the city and looking to them to help mediate. And so, if a man strikes another injuring him, notice that he is to pay for all of his medical bills and lost wages while he recovers. If a man strikes his own slave, this is a slave that still bears the image of God. He is not his master's property, as we saw last time from the first 11 verses of this chapter. And so, if the slave dies, he is to be avenged. If he is permanently injured, losing an eye or loss of a tooth, for example, he is to go free. If an expectant mother is injured, even if damage is unintentional because she just happens to be in the proximity of men fighting, Or perhaps it's the wife of one of those men, and she intervenes to try to help. Even in a situation like that, the man who injures her is still responsible for his actions. And if her unborn child dies, this is the same thing as murder. The unborn child bears the image of God, has inherent value in God's eyes, and so it is always a wicked thing to take the life of an unborn child. Now, of course, these scenarios don't speak to every situation that could arise in life together, but these would serve as guidelines to the elders of the community to help them adjudicate different cases that might come before them, to help them to determine the level of punishment that should be inflicted for various crimes. And then in verse 28, we come to another subcategory of laws related to general negligence. And so, point C here is simply that, general negligence. Here are these examples of someone's ox or any other unruly animal that causes harm upon another because of the owner's neglect. And the general principle here is taking into consideration the general welfare and safety of your neighbor. And the Lord gives some examples related to animals who are the responsibility of the owner. If the animal has no history of violence, but strikes out and kills another, that animal shall be stoned to death and shall be disposed of. It's not an animal that can be used in the sacrificial system. It's not an animal that can be roasted and consumed. Now, if the owner knows that the animal has a history of violence and doesn't do anything to secure it, then the owner is responsible in the case of death. Of course, in our own time, it's doubtful that any of you own oxes, and I don't think any of your neighbors own oxes, let alone an unruly ox. But maybe you've had one of those neighbors who swears that his dog is friendly and would never bite anyone, though he's constantly nipping at the heels of your children as they ride their bikes in front of his house. But the point here is that if some tragedy could have been prevented, the responsibility falls upon the owner. And so, in all of this, we're learning how to love our neighbor, how to conduct ourselves in a thoughtful manner toward others. We are to think of others. We are to serve those around us. We are to be mindful of how our actions affect our neighbor. I mean, you see, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are to pursue a life of self-denial and service. John Calvin writes, we are not our own, but belong to God, and so our will and our desires should not dominate our plans and actions. This is great progress in the Christian life, Calvin writes, that we forget ourselves and faithfully strive to devote our energies to God and His commands. And so, we are to recognize that everywhere we go, we represent the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to be mindful of how our behavior affects those around us and how that behavior reflects our relationship with Christ our Lord. We don't live in isolation, but everywhere we go, we represent the covenant community of which we are a part always taking that identity of Christ with us wherever we go and however we conduct ourselves. And when our actions or our negligence harms another person or damages their property, we are to take responsibility for what we have done or what we have failed to do. And so this principle of restitution is important not only for the proper maintenance of society, but it's important for the way that we represent Christ and bear witness to His name. Let's go back a little bit to verse 23. Look there again, if you will. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, how should we understand this law of retaliation? Well, this is our third main point this evening, understanding the law of retaliation, This is not the only place in Scripture where we read this eye for eye, tooth for tooth language. We read of it again in Leviticus chapter 24 and Deuteronomy chapter 19. Jesus also speaks of it in Matthew chapter 5, which we'll look at in just a moment if you'd like to turn there with me in your Bibles. But this is the principle of what is called the lex talionis, or law of retaliation, which is basically saying that the punishment must fit the crime it is not to be a punishment that is too harsh, too excessive, nor is it to be a punishment that is too minimal. Now, to call it the law of retaliation does not mean that it permits the person who was wronged from retaliating, but rather this principle, as it is adjudicated by the elders of the city, actually prevents retaliation. Because everything that we've seen up to this point is to keep the people of God from taking revenge on their own, but rather looking to the leaders, to the elders, to the judges of the community to help them determine the appropriate level of restitution. And so, the law of retaliation is not for the private citizen to implement on his own, but is actually enacted to keep people from taking revenge on their own. And the implicit charge is for the people to be satisfied with the verdict that the elders render. And so here is what the lex talionis is not teaching. It is not teaching that if a person is injured, then the one who caused the harm is to be mutilated in the same way as the person who was injured in order to balance things out. And so if someone's negligence causes the loss of sight in someone's eye, that doesn't mean that the elders of the city drag the man in and gouge out one of his eyes. That might make the injured person feel good, at least for a moment, but what does that really do to help him long term? But rather, the punishment that is inflicted is appropriate, both to satisfy the temptation toward retaliation and revenge on the one hand, and to serve to awaken the conscience upon the one who is responsible. Now, the human heart is such that we distort the law to give ourselves a pass while feeling vindicated any time we pass judgment upon another. And for those who are in a position of authority, the temptation is to use the law for one's own benefit while also using the law to try to control or abuse others who are under their authority. Now, this was the case in Jesus' day with the Pharisees, which brings us to Matthew 5 as an example of this. Look there first, if you will, at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, this means that Jesus, what He's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, is not in contradiction to the law of God, but is a correction of the pharisaical misuse of the law. Skip down then to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, You see, the Pharisees were trying to use the law of lex talionis as a way to justify retaliation. But the point that Jesus is getting at is that our focus should not be upon our rights and our feeling of being vindicated when we're wrong. It's not about balancing the scales of justice in our own minds. But if our life belongs to the Lord because we have been purchased with the shed blood of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.15, then our allegiance lies not to ourselves and to some notion of personal vindication, but we are to learn to live with eternal categories in mind. And so, Jesus in Matthew 5 gives some very relevant and contemporary examples to His original hearers. To be publicly slapped would be a huge insult and a shameful thing, but Jesus advocates a merciful response rather than a response of retaliation. If a litigious neighbor sues you for your garment, a disciple of Christ is to respond completely differently because of these eternal categories that shape our mind and heart, even showing willingness to give over a cloak as well. If a Roman soldier forces you to carry his pack one mile, which was permitted under Roman occupation, but only up to a mile, you are to humble yourself. See this as an opportunity to bear witness to your Savior and carry it an additional mile. You see, in all of this, it is the love of Christ that compels us. It is our identity as children of the living God that is to shape our entire life. And so, maybe that means being treated unfairly for the sake of the gospel. Maybe it means not insisting upon our rights in order to show mercy to another in the hopes that the Lord might use such things to bear witness to your union with Christ Jesus and their need for the hope of the gospel. And Jesus, you see, is not telling us to do something that He has not done Himself and infinitely more. Though He was perfectly righteous, He was abused, "'and mistreated horribly in the public court. "'They spit upon his face. "'He was unjustly slapped upon his cheeks. "'His back was beaten as he was scourged. "'His garments were stripped from him in shame. "'They shoved a crown of thorn upon his brow "'and struck him in the head. "'He was forced to carry his own cross "'of execution up that holy hill.' toward His death, all the while praying for His executioners and laying down His life for His enemies, for you and for me. What amazing love! What wondrous mercy! And this is the atoning work that serves as an example to the disciples of Jesus. The atoning work of Christ upon the cross is so much more, of course, than an example for His followers, but it is not less than that for those who are in union with Him. And so, as we close, let's be reminded of the charge that is before us as redeemed children of the living God. This is from Romans chapter 12. The Apostle Paul writes, "'Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good.'" To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is our charge. This is our charge as those who are saved by Christ our Lord. May our lives be filled with ever increasing gratitude for the wonder of the salvation that is ours in Christ.